Okay, we're in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12, that all may know that we are the people of God, if you would stand for reading God's word, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which also they were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which were against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. This is the word of God. Please be seated. That all may know that we are the people of God. There's no secret service Christians that all people may know that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the theme of 1 Peter is strength and comfort and suffering. Last week we talked about normal Christianity. This is not extreme Christianity. This is not the hyper, super duper Christian. It's normal Christianity. And that is, number one, to obey God, and secondly, to love the brethren. Normal Christianity means we obey God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. The Western church has virtually abandoned the truths of the Word of God. The Word of God. How often do you hear about sin, salvation, sanctification, sovereignty, and service? I don't know if you remember that, but when we went through the book of Romans, the book of Romans is really a book about the whole gospel. And that's how it's sectioned off. Sin, salvation, sanctification, sovereignty, and service. These are replaced by pep talks, motivational speeches, worship that is me-centered and not God-centered, and all kinds of disinformation that comes out that are contrary to the Word of God. And so many people have bought into this. Now, how do we obey the truth in a culture of misinformation? How do we indeed obey what the Lord Jesus Christ has commanded us to obey? Well, number one, if you remember, number one in review, we must abide in Christ, remain in Christ, dwell in Christ. The word was menno. That means remain, stay in, be close to him. That's John 15, 5. I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me or abides in me and I remain in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing, everything of value that we do comes through the power that God gives us. Secondly, we are to abide in his word, John 8, 31. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and that's what we want, the truth, and the truth will make you free. And thirdly, we talked about being filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit. And remember, being filled with the Spirit simply means that we are controlled by the Spirit of God. And it's volitional. It is something that we do because the Spirit of God already dwells within us. And in agreement with the Spirit, we are walking in concert with the Spirit. Remember we said last time, Jesus in John 7, 37 through 39, he gave a promise. He gave a promise. He said this, He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow 
rivers of living water. Remember, we emphasize rivers of living water, not a trickle, not a little stream, not a little sprinkle, but rivers of living water. He spoke about this concerning the Spirit of God which would come after he was glorified. Now, in the normal Christian life, it is an abiding in Christ life. It is a Spirit-filled life. This is normal. This is not the extreme. And these, if we do this, it will be an impactful life. We will be able to impact the culture. It's normal. It's normal. And remember that the normal Christian life is to be focused on what is taught in the Word of God. That is what we focus on, what is taught in the words of, Word of God. Now, there are three ways that people relate to the Word of God. And I didn't cover this last week, but I would like to just mention that to you today. And it's something that you might really think about. First way is this, that the Word of God is beneath them. That the Word, you see this in academia, where the Word of God, you're almost silly because you believe that God's Word is inspired, or you believe God's Word is true. Examples of this, this would be somebody like Bart Ehrman or, or, or Bart Campolo, who were professed Christians at one point, but yet abandoned their faith, abdicated their faith, at least they professed Christianity at one point, and now are atheists, do not believe in any, anything that the Scripture says. And it was a slow motion for them. First, it was, comp it was compromising on, is this the inspired word? And then, was Jesus really resurrected? And was Jesus really the Son of God? And it's just this compromise, 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 so they come to the point that they don't believe at all. The Scripture, the Bible, is beneath them. The second one is that it's at the same level. It's at the same level. And what that means is that people constantly debate and struggle with what God is saying in His Word. And they try to twist the Scriptures to make it fit what they want to believe and how, what they want to, how they want to run their lives. And they'll accept them some things, but not accept other things. It's at the same level. And the third way is the way it should be, that the Word of God is above us. It is above us. And we submit to its authority. We live it out. And, and we, we do what it says in context. Remember, you can have all kinds of Scripture twisting that people do to try to make it say what they want it to say. But in context, we want to know what God is asking His people to do or telling His people to do. So the normal Christian life is a growing life. You're in the Word of God. Remember, no one is saved. No one is born again to stay the same. Every time someone is born again, Jesus requires of them to follow him. Remember, not to be a cheerleader, not to be a fan from a distance, but to follow him, to become more and more like him. And then we were taught last week that because we are followers of Christ, we are to lay aside our old man and put on the new man. This is, again, a volitional act that you do through the power of the Holy Spirit. You put away anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your heart, etc. And as the new man, you put on righteousness, justice, mercy, that's that sort of thing. These are volitional things. Now, this only happens as you are transformed by the renewing of your mind. And this whole process we call sanctification, being set apart unto God. Now, remember, there's always going to be a battle with your flesh your soul, your thinking, remember your soul is your thought, emotions, feelings, and that sort of thing. Those aren't redeemed. Those aren't redeemed. Your spirit was redeemed. Those things are fighting against you and resist the change and always want to go back to the old way. And there will be a struggle within your being because your flesh and your soul want things status quo. They don't want you to progress in your new life. You, as a believer, must lay aside the old man, put on the new man, and start moving forward. Power of the Holy Spirit. 
transform life. That's the normal Christian life as they transform life, empowered by the spirit life. It's not automatic. It's something that we have to have to participate with the Holy Spirit in, but it is accomplishable. Now, this week we're going to be talking about because we have been transformed, because our transformation has allowed us to impact the culture, we are indeed to do that, that all may know that we are the people of God. We are the people of God. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. Holy Spirit, please open our eyes to the truth. And, and Lord, speak to our hearts. Teach us what you want us to know. In Jesus' name, amen. That all may know that we are the people of God. Now, Chuck Swindoll says this in his first Peter study. He says, for some unexplainable reason, we have a tendency to outgrow a close friendship with God. When we were children, we felt free and open with our Heavenly Father. But when we became adults, we seemed to take a few giant steps backwards. The ease at which we once approached God is written in letters by children. And you will see in these letters, I'm just going to give you a couple samples, the innocence, the openness of these children. And actually, this is a quote from a guy named, named Bill Adler, and he wrote this, uh, Dear Lord, Messages from Children. This is from Hank, age seven. He says, Dear Lord, now watch the innocence and the honesty of this. Thank you for the nice day today. You even fooled the weatherman. Hmm. <laughs> yes. David, age eight, Dear Lord, do you ever get mad? My mother gets mad all the time, but she's only human, she says. <laughs> I'm only human, David. Yeah, how about David, age seven? Dear Lord, I need a raise in my allowance. Could you have one of your angels tell my dad? <laughs> and then this last one, dear God, can you guess what is the biggest river of all of them? I'll give you a hint. It's the Amazon. You ought to be able to because you made it. Ha ha. Guess who? That's how it ends. So Chuck Swindoll goes on to say this. It would be interesting to compile an assortment of adult letters to God. Undoubtedly, the childhood innocence would be lost. The words would be more guarded. Fear and feelings of worthlessness would underscore our halting sentences. Guilt and regret would punctuate our paragraphs. We have lost much on the road to adulthood. We have lost the intimacy, the innocence the friendliness that we can have with our God. Well, in 1 Peter chapter 2, we want to try to restore some of that, that all may know that we are indeed the people of God, the children of God, and we have a love relationship with our Father and with the Lord Jesus Christ. People of God know this, Psalm 103.8. People of God, tell me if you don't know this, that the Lord is merciful. He is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. He has immense patience with his children. As a matter of fact, 103.14 says this, he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. We are simply dust. We think we're great. He looks at us as dust. Lamentations 3.25, the people of God know this, that the Lord is good. He is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Oh, the Lord is good with those qualifiers, those who wait and those who seek. And in Micah 7, 7, the people of God know this. I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. For I know that my God will hear me. Now, isn't that intimate? I know that my God will hear me. Great words. All the people of God must know that God is merciful, that God is good, 
and that God will hear me when I have a need. In verses 4 and 5, we want to be reminded that the people of God are precious to God. You are precious to him. He loves you implicitly. There is no more love that God can, can, can fathom up, can, can cook up, than what he has for you the day that you say yes to the Lord Jesus. He loves you implicitly. Verse 4 and 5, coming to him. Now, these are believers. These are people who believe. Coming to him is the Lord Jesus. As to a living stone, Jesus is pictured as a stone, a living stone. That's a metaphor. Rejected indeed by men. Oh, but chosen by God and precious. And then he says, that is Jesus. And he's going to say, by extension, you. You also as living stones, and may I just add to the text, you are also precious, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the living stone. And remember, we've mentioned the cornerstone many times. In Ephesians chapter 2, we see that the apostles and the prophets form the foundation of the church, and Jesus is the chief cornerstone. And that is the stone that squares the building. That is the stone that makes the building solid and secure and stable. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the church. It is not a human. It is not some famous pastor. It is not some board of whatever. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone of the church. And we become people of God by simply coming to him and saying, yes, Jesus, in verse 4. We come to the living stone. As believers, we come to him as the living stone. We make up the building, which is a special house. The metaphor is we are a special house, a brick, a building. We are cemented into the house of God. The people of God are precious to God, are in the family of God. We are called sons and daughters of God, children of God. These are precious words that God uses for us. And we are fitted together. We are cemented together. And we are placed there by the Holy Spirit. We become a dwelling place, and we are stronger together when we are knit together, when we do life together. Isolated, we are not strong, but together we are strong. Listen to what William Barclay says about this. He gives this illustration about Sparta. A Sparta king boasted to his visiting monarch about the walls of Sparta and how strong they were. The visiting monarch looked around and could see no walls, He said to the Spartan king, where are these walls about which you boast so much about? His host pointed at the bodyguard of magnificent troops. These, he said, are the walls of Sparta, every man a brick, every man cemented together, every man united together, the walls of Sparta. And Barclay goes on to say this, the point is clear. So long as the brick lies by itself, it is useless. It becomes of use only when it is incorporated into a building. So it is with the individual Christian. To realize his destiny, he must not remain alone, but must be built into the fabric of the church. There's no such thing as an isolated Christian. There's no such thing. It's always corporate. It's always together. And if you come on Tuesday night, and Deuteronomy chapter 12, this is a plug for Tuesday, okay? If you come then, I will be talking about worship and what worship really is and what, the, what God expects from his people in worship. And it is togetherness, corporateness, and that will be emphasized over and over in that text. Just a heads up on that one. Now remember this, you are indeed temple, you're not only corporately the, the building of God, but individually you are the temple of the living God. 2 Corinthians 6.16 
You are indeed are the temple of the living God. And this is an enormous privilege. The rest of all of, all of humankind until Jesus came, the Holy Spirit did not reside in corporately in all the people. It was selective, prophets, priests, and kings. But now whoever believes in Jesus, God dwells in you. It's a huge privilege. It's a huge privilege that we have as believers. God's Spirit dwells in us. Now look at Spirit of God dwells in you. He gives you something that no other group of people ever, ever had. You are born again of the Spirit in John 3.3. 3. He gives you life. He gives you life. He gives you direction in your life. You want to know where to go, where to turn, what to do. The Spirit of God in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 21 says, if you, when you hear his voice, when you turn to the left or the right, he'll say, this is the way, walk in it. Walk in it. The Spirit of God gives you purpose in your life. 1 Peter 4.10, as each of you has received a gift, minister it to one another. That is our purpose, to minister to one another. As the fruits of the manifold grace of God, we are to minister to one another. Use your spiritual gift. And finally, the Holy Spirit gives you something that you need on this side desperately, and that is comfort. He gives you comfort. He is your paracletos. He comes right alongside of you wherever you go in life. Your comforter is with you. That is important because there are going to be places that you go by yourself. You go into your boss's office by yourself and wonder what he's going to say to you. You go to your doctor's office and you walk into that guy's room and maybe somebody's with you, but you're, you're pretty much alone. Your comforter is with you. When you go through the last stages of your life, there might be people around. As you drift off, your comforter will be with you. The Spirit of God is always with you. And he's given us these, these wonderful things, that, that all of these things that the Spirit does so that we can impact the world for the Lord Jesus Christ. Another privilege that he's given us, he calls us priests of God in this text. Priests of God, built up in a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Priests of God. Now look at all believers. Hear this. All believers are chosen elected, that is the worst, electos, to be priest of God. Everyone that receives Jesus Christ are chosen to be priests. Remember the Levites in the Old Testament? They were the only ones that could be priests. God chose them to be priests. They were the only ones that could be priests. No one else could usurp that position. If they did, some of them died. Saul lost his kingdom because of that. He tried to usurp Samuel's position as, as a priestly role. Only the priests can serve it. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, believers are chosen for priestly service. All of humanity on earth that is outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, they cannot offer up sacrifices to God. They cannot intercede on behalf of anybody because they're not in the family of God. This priesthood of believers is extremely important. Only priests can offer sacrifices to God and intercede for others. Only priests can do that. We are the priesthood of believers. There's billions of people on this earth, but there's only a few that are really priests of God, a remnant. It's a huge priestly duty that we have. Now listen to this. A huge priestly duty is this, to sacrifice our own desires for the good of others, for the cause of God. You know what that means? That means I live where I live because this is where God called me. In other words, I'm not chasing the sun because this is where I, where I think I, I, I would be the most happy. That is not how a priest thinks. A priest thinks about how can I serve you, God? 
You go to a specific church because God has called you to that place to serve God in, 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 that, in that environment. God chose you. And, and, and the example is this. In, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, Jesus is our example. Let me read this to you. And walk in love. That's Jesus' example. As Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, sacrificed himself for us. That's what priests do. And that was a sweet-smelling aroma to God. That is a priestly duty that we have. Jesus sacrificed. That is our example of sacrifice. You think that you're sacrificing by living in Battle Creek? Just think of Jesus coming from heaven to become a human and live amongst us and get to experience all the wonderful things of being rejected and beaten and all that stuff. All for us. You talk about culture shock. The people of God are indeed precious to God. They are living stones cemented together. We are priests. We intercede for others. We sacrifice for others. No other people on earth can do this. This is a privileged position. Of all the billions of people, just a few can do this. And we do this that all may know that we are the people of God. We tell people and we live for him. We tell them about the Lord Jesus. Verses 6 through 8, the people of God will not be put to shame. Now, I want to emphasize something. Shame is something that comes from the dark side, that does not come from the light. God never shames his people. He never condemns his people. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is always Satan, shame and condemnation. Verse 6 through 8, therefore it is also contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion, which is Jerusalem, a chief cornerstone, that'd be Jesus, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means, no means ever be put to shame, never dishonored before God. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, who do not believe, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. They stumble, watch this, being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. Now look, that verse can be taken in many different ways, but I want to present it this way, and I think it would be right. They are appointed to stumble if they are disobedient to the word of God. They are appointed to stumble if they're disobedient to the word of God, which directs people to the rock, the rock. He can be the rock of salvation, he can be the rock of your life, or he can be a rock of offense if you reject him. The world, the masses have rejected the cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ. A huge benefit to all believers that we all have, we will never, ever, ever experience shame and condemnation from our God. Never. What you do get is conviction. Conviction draws you to God. Shame and condemnation pushes you away from God. That is Satan's goal, is to shame and condemn and push you away from God. In verse 6, we say, And he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Now, in the Greek, that is a double negative. Never, never be put to shame. That's a Holy Spirit emphasis. Never, never be put to shame. Never, never dishonored. Never dishonored. To believers, Jesus is precious. He is revered. He is honored. And he is the one who loves us. And we are to love him. To the dis disobedient. 
to the rejectors. Jesus is the stumbling block, and he is a rock of offense. And so much so that just believing in him can cost you your life. They are so offended in many parts of the world, it can cost you your life. The vast majority of the world are unbelievers and offended by Jesus. They reject that he is God incarnate, God in the flesh. They reject that he died for them. They reject salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. Sola gracia, sola fide, sola Christus, alone, 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 grace, faith, Christ alone. Reject his words of exclusivity when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father except by me in John 14, 6. They reject that. To them, Jesus is a stone of offense to the majority of the culture, majority of the world. He is a stone of offense, even becoming more so in America. You can talk about a generic God, but you cannot offer up the Lord Jesus Christ because that is an offense to people. I used to be asked to say the prayer at, our, at my work Christmas party. And they said, but Rick, you can't mention Jesus. And I says, I can't say the prayer. I can't say the prayer because it's all done in his name. That's even within the last 30 years. 30 years. Those who are truly followers of Jesus Christ, the world is offended at your Jesus. They are offended at your Jesus. Let me give you an illustration. There was a guy, his name was Voltaire. He was a Frenchman. Okay, very much an intellectual, very much looked up upon in the, in the French culture. Sunday School Times writes this, God has a unique way of dealing with those who stumble on the cornerstone. Voltaire, the French atheist, stumbled over the eternal word of God. The story goes this way. One day, one day Voltaire said to a friend, it took 12 ignorant fishermen to establish Christianity. I will show the world how one Frenchman can destroy it. Oh, what arrogance, what hubris, what pride. Setting to his task, he openly ridiculed Sir Isaac Newton. One day, Newton made a prophecy based on Daniel 12.4 and Nahum 2.4 when he said, man will someday be able to travel at the tremendous speed of 40 miles an hour. Voltaire replied, see what a fool Christianity makes of otherwise brilliant men such as Sir Isaac Newton. Doesn't he know that if a man traveled 40 miles an hour, he would suffocate and his heart would stop? Isn't that amazing? 25 years later, Voltaire, who wanted to eliminate Christianity, died. His home was purchased by the Geneva Bible Society, became a Bible storage building, and his, print, his printing press that put out propaganda was used to, pr to print an entire edition of the Bible. Now, who won? Jesus wins. How ironic. The man who wanted to wipe out every trace of Christianity was foiled and indirectly became an unwilling participant in the distribution of the Word of God. A word to the wise. The cornerstone is either a stepping stone or a crushing boulder. Voltaire. Much to learn from his hubris, his arrogance, and what not to do. Remember, the true church is a remnant church. Just because you put the tag Christian on you does not mean you're a Christian. Very few are born again of the Spirit. It is a remnant. It is a few that are really living this out, living out their faith for real. And it's, and it's going to become worse. Your biblical worldview will not be popular 
it will be even hated and more so, and what we're seeing now, more so as the day of the Lord approaches or draws near. Now, we believe that we are living in that time. Very strongly believe we're living in that time. The real Jesus is a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense to the end, even to the end time church who will be apostate. We see in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, that the church will become apostate. It means they're going to fall away from the fundamentals of the faith. And they will follow lies and things that make them feel good. That's what is going to happen. It will be Laodicean, we see in Revelation chapter 3, verse 15 through 17. Who thought they had everything? Let me read this. I know your works. This is Jesus speaking. That you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were, you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And this is what this church thinks of themselves. This is what the world thinks of this church. Watch this. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and need of nothing. This is the... This would be the, the giant church that everybody's going to, the most popular church, but devoid of the Word of God. Giving a lot of pep talks, okay? A lot of, a lot of encouragement, a lot of self-help stuff. Because you say I'm wretched, you become wealthy, you become in need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched. This is the eyes of Jesus. Wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You know what it means by naked? You are not clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. You are lost. That is the end-time church. That's the Laodicean church. That's the church that apostatizes. That is what we see more and more and more today. When the Word of God has been taken out of the culture, it'll slip in all kinds of man's thinking. And that is what we are living in. The good news is this. Especially as the days grow darker and you become more criticized for your faith, in God's eyes, you will never, never be put to shame. The culture may try to shame you. The culture may try to tell you that you're intolerant, that you're bigoted, that you're narrow-minded because you are not embracing multiple ways to God. And they do that. It's tragic. And they lost. And they don't know the truth. And they need to know the truth. Because they will really become free. The truth will set you free. God's eyes will never, never be put to shame. And I'll tell you, that's an amazing thing. Verse 9 and 10, the people of God are a royal priesthood. He's going to do an extension of what he said in verse 5, a royal priesthood, verse 9 and 10. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now, he's talking to Jewish believers. They're very familiar with the priesthood. His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness. That's where we're called, not out of this dark world of despair, into his marvelous, wonderful light, who once were not a people but now are now a people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Oh, this is, this is great. There's a re-emphasis on the priesthood. It, 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 it's, 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 it's an important thing to remember here. The job of a priest, an important thing to remember that each, job, each one of us has a job of a priest, and that is to tell people what Jesus did for you. That's a sacrifice in this culture. Because you will take some ridicule for that. You will tell them. It says in verse 5, Proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness. That's what priests do. By proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous, wonderful light. We are to tell them. We are to show them. We are to live it out. 
that the world may know and proclaim. And we proclaim who Jesus is. Our lives are never to be hidden. They are always to be out there proclaiming who the Lord Jesus is. Folks, we are the people of God for one reason, and that is because in verse 6, we have obtained mercy. God has mercied us. All the punishment, all the condemnation, all the awfulness of my sin was placed on Jesus, all of it. Everything was poured out on Jesus, all of it. Our past, present, our future, all of our sins were poured out on him. I did not get what I deserved. I deserved, each one of us deserved hell. Separation from God. We're depraved. We're lost. We're pitifully, we're pitifully hopeless without Christ. Pitifully hopeless. And I'll tell you, Jesus died. Believers have forgiveness of sins and the promise of heaven, a promise of living forever with him. I'll tell you, this is amazing love. This is why the priesthood of believers, as a priesthood of believers, we, we proclaim, we tell, we declare abroad the praises of him who called us out of our dark, dead, separated from God life when he saved us and brought us into the marvelous light of, the, of his son. We tell people about the light of the world. Remember, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever comes to me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. It's the marvelous light of Jesus. What a contrast. Darkness, light. Death, life. I mean, it is huge, the difference between being in Satan's kingdom and Christ's kingdom. Huge difference. Verse 11 and 12, and we'll be done. 11 and 12, the people of God living out their faith will live out their faith for real. For real. The people of God will live out their faith for real. Verse 11 and 12, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, aliens and strangers in the NIV. And watch what it says. Abstain from fleshly lust. Pretty straightforward. That's an imperative. It's a command. Which war against the soul. Having your conduct, uh-oh, how we act in the culture, honorable among the Gentiles, among the people we come in contact with, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, be, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. There will be a time when Jesus comes back. Let's develop this and we'll be through. It's a Holy Spirit reminder. This world is not our home. And all I can say is, hip, hip, hooray. This is not it. We are simply passing through. We are in foreign land. We've said this many times. Aliens and strangers sojourners and pilgrims, and because we are different, belong to a different king in a different kingdom, we are to act and live different. We are strangers, and as strangers, we are to, what does he say? Abstain from fleshly lusts. Now, is this possible in this culture? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. We are, do not take flesh forays into your past. Do not go into your past. Abstain from fleshly lust. That word abstain is this. Keep yourself from, stay away from whatever it is that, that you're drawn to. And I will call them your triggers. Your triggers. Each one of us has a trigger. A trigger. Romans 13, 14 is a great memory verse. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. That is a great verse to remember. And remember, the war is against your soul. It is against your mind, your thoughts, feelings, and emotions. And I want to remind you this. Remember, your flesh, your sarks, your soul, 
Zadiades calls, says it this way, belongs to the lowest, low region of mankind's being, the lower region of mankind's being, and it wars against your spirit. It wants to control you. Your flesh wants to control you. Your mind, emotions, feelings want to control you. Moment by moment, literally second by second, we must make a faith choice. We must make a faith choice and use the Holy Spirit's power to say no to the flesh. And we can because the Spirit lives within us. We don't have to capitulate to every little whim that we have, every little urge. And people, you know, we're like babies. You know, babies have urges. Well, they respond to their urges. We're to be growing and be able to put away those urges and walk in newness of life and walk differently. He's given us something. Every single believer, everybody been born, that's been born into the family of God has this. You have karatos power. Karatos power. And that is the power to reign in the flesh life, the self life, the power to stand against the wiles of the devil. And remember that word wiles in, in Ephesians chapter 6 is methodia. His methods, his strategies that he has that work successfully against humans. He has given us the ability to say no to those wiles of the devil. When you make a faith choice, you are standing against the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world system, which is under Satan's control. Your flesh, which is drawn towards the world, and the devil himself in 1 John 2.6. We are to take a stand, folks. Take a stand. Be a man of God. Be a woman of God. Take a stand. Take a stand. When you are accused of being an evildoer, they will see your good works. How you live in this culture is exceedingly important. Exceedingly important. The idea is that you are influencing other people, that they will see your good works and be convinced that the Christian life is real. So many people see phony baloney blended Christians who are living half in and half out and want nothing to do with that. They want nothing to do with that. They want to see it's real and worthwhile, and then it works. And when Jesus returns, that maybe some of those who were critical of you will be saved on the day of visitation, the day when Jesus comes back, the day that you've influenced somebody for the kingdom of God. Oh, hear this. We are here for a purpose, folks to influence others, to make an impact through our conduct and lead them to the Savior that they may know the Good Shepherd. That they may know the Good Shepherd. Isn't Jesus the best gift ever? The Good Shepherd is, a, I mean, what a, what a wonderful title to put on him. The Good Shepherd, the Great Shepherd. He is our shepherd. And his sheep will hear his voice. Listen to this illustration that I got out of the Outline Study Bible. It says this, Is your faith seen by unbelievers as some religious game, or is it seen as your life? Are, are honesty and integrity seen in your faith? Does your faith really make a difference in the eyes of the lost? Or do they see someone that is just like them? Listen closely to the story about faith that made a difference. A leading actor was honored at a banquet. In the after-dinner ceremonies, the actor was asked to recite for the pleasure of his guest, 
He consented and asked if there was anything special anyone in the audience would like to hear. There was a moment of pause, and then an old clergyman spoke up. Could you, sir, he said, recite the 23rd Psalm? A strange look came over the actor's face, but he was speechless for only a moment. I can, sir, I will, on one condition, and that is that after I have recited, you, my friend, will do the same. I, replied the surprised clergyman, but I am not eloquent. I am not a public speaker. However, if you wish, I will do so. Impressively, the great actor began the psalm, holding his audience spellbound as he finished. A great burst of applause broke forth from the guests. After the applause had ceased, the old clergyman arose. The audience sat in intense silence. The psalm was recited. And when it was done, there was not the slightest ripple of applause. But those in the audience whose eyes were yet dry had their heads bowed. The great actor, with hand on the shoulder of the old clergyman, his voice trembling, exclaimed, I reached your eyes and your ears, my friends. This man reached your hearts. I know the 23rd Psalm. This man knows the shepherd. Is your faith real enough to cause others to want the shepherd? Is your faith real enough to cause others to want the shepherd? Conclusion, that may all may know that we are the people of God. We are precious to God, verse 4 and 5. We will never, ever, ever be put to shame. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are a royal priesthood, and as priests we will sacrifice for our king, and we will intercede on behalf of others to our king. We are to live out our faith for real. Abstain from fleshly lust. Stay away from your triggers. Stay away from friends, places that have drawn you away from God. That the world may know the good shepherd and that Christianity is real. It is real. We are representatives of him. This is all the world sees is us. We have a giant responsibility to represent him as he is that all may know that we are the people of God. Strange and weird to the world, yet precious to God. Wayne Watson wrote a song, and it's called The People of God, and I will just recite to you just a short portion of it. He says this, With our lips let us sing one confession. Now listen to the words. Listen to the words. This, this is great. With our lips let us sing one confession. With our hearts hold to one truth alone. For he has erased our transgressions, claimed us and called us his own, his very own. Oh, hear us, O oh spirits of darkness, so you will know where we stand. We are his servants, purchased with scars, bought by the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb. And then the chorus goes like this. And if you know the chorus, just sing it with me. Would you please? We're the people of God, called by his name, called from the dark and delivered from shame. One holy race, saints everyone, because of the blood of Christ, Jesus the Son. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice. Thank you because of your scars and your shed blood. We are part of the people of God. Thank you that you've called us to represent you in this culture.
that you've just not left us to ourselves, but you've given us your spirit that has allowed us to be born again of the spirit, that you direct our steps and say, this is the way, walk in it, that you are indeed our comforter in times of trouble and distress. You've given us a promise that you'll never leave us nor forsake us. And Lord, with that strength, we go forward and we tell people the story about the good shepherd, that the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me to the side of still waters. He restores my soul. You are a wonderful, great shepherd. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the sacrifice that you made for us. Thank you for the study in 1 Peter chapter 2. And may we represent you truly as the people of God called by your name. Thank you, Lord, for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.